Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well. And welcome to week number two of our study through the Olivet Discourse, or to week number two of our study through chapter 13 in the Gospel of Mark, a chapter which, we be, which began, as we saw last week, with one of Jesus' disciples saying to him in verse 1, after he, Jesus Christ, came out of the temple, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Referring here to the beauty and to the grandeur and to the magnificence of the temple complex and to its foundational stones, church, that were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide, and to its courtyards and porticos and massive columns, church, that took up approximately one-sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem as well, to which Jesus Christ then says back to this disciple, as we see in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that utterly shocking and astonishing and staggering statement from Jesus Christ, well, it calls then four of Jesus' disciples, those disciples being Peter and Andrew and James and John, to ask Jesus Christ privately then, on the Mount of Olives, as we see in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Or as the evangelist Matthew puts it, in his account of the Olivet Discourse, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And what seems to be the disciples' thought process here was that they believed, church, that the destruction of the temple, as just foretold by Jesus Christ in verse 2, that that type of catastrophe or destruction, that it would be a part of or accompany the end of the age or that of the eschatological end. And thus Jesus Christ, in light of that, answers their questions then, as one commentator writes, by weaving together in a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives. Number one, the near event, that being the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And number two, the far event, that being the coming of the Son of Man in clouds with power and glory. The local event here serving as a forerunner of the latter universal event. And Jesus Christ then, he begins his discourse then by initially warning his disciples in verses 5 and 6 about not being led astray by false messiahs. And then in verse 7 about wars and rumors of wars. And then in verse 8 about nation rising up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and about famines and earthquakes. Since verse 8, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And that times of catastrophe and pain and disaster will continue to increase before the end takes place. Which, as we noted last week, church, did indeed take place prior to the fall of the temple in 70 AD. And will also then take place prior to the end of the eschatological age as well. To which Jesus Christ then goes on to say to his disciples in verse 9, Be on your guard since they will be delivered over to councils, 
will be beaten in synagogues, will stand before governors, and verse 13, will be hated by all, Jesus Christ says, for my name's sake. But as Jesus Christ also then makes clear to his disciples here in verse 13, that the one who endures until the end will be saved. And that although Jesus' disciples were tested during the first century church, and although testing will also be a component of the last times or that of the end times church, those who endure in Jesus Christ until the very end will most assuredly be saved. To which Jesus Christ then, as we will see in the text today, turns his attention in the Olivet Discourse to the abomination of desolation and to the coming of the Son of Man. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Tribulation will come, but so will the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, with great power and glory. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Tribulation will come, but so will the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, with great power and glory. And glory. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to the Gospel of Mark, and specifically to Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 27. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you. And to turn that brand new Bible of yours to page 849 and join us as we as a church family hear the word of God together this morning. For again, we'll be in Mark chapter 13 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 14 through 27, where John Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes... But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds 
with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful text that is before us this morning. And Father, I pray that you open our eyes, our ears, and soften our hearts this morning to it as well. Father, let us be in awe of the glory of the Son of Man coming in great power and in glory. To send out the angels to gather his elect, the church, for what a wonderful celebratory day it will be, one like no other. Father, fix our eyes on this glorious occasion, I pray. And Father, I pray also, as we work our way through the Olivet Discourse again for the second week in a row, Father, that we be humble as we approach this text knowing that there are numerous interpretations of this text, numerous understandings. And Father, let us not have a haughty spirit as we approach this. For what a fool I would be to stand up here this morning and to think that I have the corner and of all the answers of this text. And yet, let us keep the big things the big things here, Father. Let us not become divisive over this. But instead, let us glorify you, be transformed by this text, be in all of it, and glorify you nonetheless. Father, I help, pray that you help my lisping and stammering tongue this morning. Help me to preach boldly, humbly, and in a way that glorifies you, that builds up and edifies each one of these saints here this morning, and is a sacrifice that brings glory to you. Do this wonderful work, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, tribulation is going to come. Point number one, tribulation is going to come. Verses 14 through 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he not, ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So after already warning his disciples about false messiahs and about wars and rumors of wars and about famines and earthquakes 
and about being beaten, delivered over to councils, and being hated by all, Jesus Christ then goes on to say to his disciples in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, to which you might be sitting there this morning, church, wondering, for what on earth is the abomination of desolation? Or as the NIV puts it, the abomination that causes desolation. And it's a phrase, as Matthew puts it, in his account of the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, who wrote, as we see in Daniel chapter 9, that on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And then again in Daniel chapter 11, that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And then finally, in Daniel chapter 12, that from that time, the regular burnt offering will be taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. And thus, in short, as one commentator explains it, The abomination of desolation seems to be something so abominable or seems to be so repugnant to God that it leads to the temple being left desolate or deserted and that in vacating it, the holy and pious worshipers of God leave it to God for judgment. Consequently, then, this prophecy seemingly found its first or initial fulfillment in 167 B.C., when the Seleucid king or Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV in essence had some kind of altar erected in the Jewish temple in honor of the pagan god Zeus and then sacrificed a pig on it and in doing so desecrated the temple. However, being that Jesus Christ also uses the phrase in verse 14, the abomination of desolation, For that seems to indicate then, church, that he, Jesus Christ, did not believe that this prophecy would only find its fulfillment in 167 BC, but that it would also then find other fulfillments, seemingly within the immediate context here, to when the temple would be desecrated and destroyed at the hands of Rome and the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. And furthermore then, or ultimately then, to the end times as well. Or to when the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 puts it, brings about a time of great tribulation against Christians prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Or as scholar James Edwards summarizes it, the abomination of desolation seems to allude to the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD, but is not exhausted by it. And that the abomination of desolation is a mysterious double referent or a historical medium that anticipates an ultimate fulfillment in the advent of the Antichrist and the final tribulation before the return of the Son of Man. And thus the Roman general Titus's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is kind of like a scouting film and that it gives an authentic picture of one's future opponent. 
But there is, of course, a great deal of difference between clashing with players in a stadium as opposed to simply watching them on film. And thus, seemingly, with the context of 70 AD here, church, in mind, Jesus Christ then says to his disciples in verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, as Daniel Aiken writes, perhaps a reference to the Roman general Titus entering the temple in 70 AD, that verse 14, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And verse 15, the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter the house. And verse 16, the one who is in the field not to turn back and take his cloak, but instead just run, just flee to the mountains, get out of town, get out of Dodge, get out of Judea, and just get away from it all. And verse 17, alas for the women who are pregnant, or how terrible it will be for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing seen infants in those days. So much so that Jesus Christ himself then, church, goes on to say in verse 18, pray that it may not happen in the winter. Since pregnant and nursing mothers are going to have a hard enough time, church, fleeing to the mountains when all this takes place, let alone trying to do so in the winter. Nevertheless, the reason why Jesus Christ says here that all this fleeing needs to be done with such urgency here, and with such gravity here, and with such seriousness and earnestness and priority here, is because as we go on to see in verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And then in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And make no mistake about it, church. For when the Roman armies and Titus came in, in 70 AD, and desecrated the temple and destroyed that of Jerusalem, for it was a time of absolute tribulation and suffering and anguish and distress. And I say that because for over a million Jews were killed during this time. Nearly 100,000 Jews were enslaved during this time, and starvation was so rampant that there's even a story about a mother who killed and who cooked her own child as a means of food during this time. For that is how terrible and how horrible and how dreadful and how awful the destruction of Jerusalem was in 70 AD. And yet, for as terrible... And as horrible and as dreadful and as awful as the destruction of Jerusalem was, and although, as Walter Wessel notes, the aforementioned prophecy was fulfilled partially in the great distress that occurred during this destruction, its ultimate referent is still to the great tribulation that will precede the end of the age. This point being reinforced by the statement in verse 20, that no human being would survive or be saved without the Lord's shortening of those days. To which Jesus Christ then, church, warns his disciples, as we see in verses 21 and 22, about false Christ arising and about false prophets appearing who will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
or as other translations put it, if it were possible, the elect, or if that were possible, the elect, or if indeed that were possible, the elect, or if such a thing were possible, the elect. However, no matter how hard they, these false Christ and false prophets may try, for it will not be possible for them, church, to truly lead astray any of our God's elect. Since the fact of the matter is, whether it's the first century church, the 21st century church, or the end of the eschatological aid church, no false prophet, no false teacher, or no false Christ will ever, ever, ever be able to truly lead astray any of our God's elect. And I say that with such confidence this morning, church, because as Jesus Christ himself declared in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, as the good shepherd himself here, that my sheep, they hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. For I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And thus put your mind at ease this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, knowing full well that our God is not in the business of losing any of his children, any of his people, any of his elect who were purchased, cleansed, and redeemed by the blood of his own Son, Jesus Christ, to any kind of false teacher, false prophet, false Messiah, or false Christ. Since those whom our God foreknew, church, Romans chapter 8, he predestined and those whom he predestined church he called and those whom he called church he justified and those whom he justified church he will one day glorify and no one will ever, ever, ever be able church to snatch any of his elect out of his hand. Which brings us to point number two. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come again in the clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come again in the clouds with great power and glory. Verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So Jesus Christ then goes on to say to his disciples here, In verses 24 and 25, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Seemingly speaking, eschatologically here, or about that of the end of the age. And I say that because the phrase, in those days, as referenced by Jesus Christ here in verse 24, is used throughout the Old Testament as numerous commentators point out here, as being associated with or a stereotype for the end times. And thus seemingly in those last days church or following the aforementioned final tribulation or great tribulation, 
But still before the return of Jesus Christ, we see in verses 24 and 25 that the sun, that it will be darkened. And that the moon, that it will not give its light. And that stars, that they will be falling from heaven. And that we seemingly have a picture here, church, of some kind of celestial chaos taking place. Only then, with this apparent setting of darkness just hovering over the earth at this time, does the Son of Man then, verse 26, come in the clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man being, as we have referenced, over and over and over again, church, throughout the Gospel of Mark, the one from Daniel chapter 7, who is from heaven, and to dominion and glory and a kingdom has been given to, in that at that time, church, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King of the kingdom of God, will come again personally and visibly and bodily, and yet this time... He's not coming as a baby church, nor is he coming to be placed in a manger church, nor is he coming to suffer, to be spit on, or to be pierced, crucified, killed, or crushed church. But instead, this time, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he's coming with great power and great glory. And verse 27, to send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. In essence, that at the return of Jesus Christ, the elect are going to be gathered from everywhere, church. From heaven, from earth, from everywhere. Or to put it another way, that at the return of Jesus Christ, all those who genuinely confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, all those who sincerely repented of their sins and believed in the gospel, all those who truly by grace alone place their faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, for they all will be gathered at that time to the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, and not one of them will be missed. And thus, let yourself this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, find absolute peace and comfort and hope and joy in the fact that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the King of the Kingdom of God, will one day, most assuredly, personally and visibly and bodily, come again in the clouds with great power and great glory, and his elect, they will be gathered, and they will be with him forever. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who was here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, how at the return of Jesus Christ, how you too can be gathered to Jesus Christ, which, make no mistake about it, is still possible for you, non-Christian, but only if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ who came into this world non-Christian as truly God and as truly man, to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sins by initially living for us the life that we as sinners could never, ever live. And that Jesus Christ lived a life here on earth, non-Christian, that was holy and righteous and just and good and free from any kind of iniquity or transgression or offense or sin. And thus, because of that, he, Jesus Christ then, 
fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely non-Christian, all four, the very children of God. However, keeping the law of God, all four, the very children of God, for that was not all that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because Jesus Christ also then paid the price for our sins that we as sinners could not pay by willingly taking our sins upon himself and by being pierced and crucified, killed and crushed on an old rugged cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, satisfied the justice of our holy God and appeased that non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God, all toward his sinful children as well. And thus because of that, three days later than this sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, for he didn't remain dead or buried in some grave, but instead since sin and death had absolutely no power over him, three days later, he, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his righteousness in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here today, For as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so by encouraging you all at this time to continue to persevere in Jesus Christ and to continue to be on guard against the false teachers, the false prophets, and the deceptions of the devil that are out there today. And I'd like to encourage you all in that way this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, Because even though our God will never, ever, ever let any of his elect or any of his children ever truly be plucked out of his hand or truly be led astray, for that does not mean, Christian, that as the elect or that as the true children of God, that we can become lackadaisical than Christian or careless than Christian or indifferent nonchalant, inattentive, or negligent than Christian in our Christian walk, especially when it comes to those who are looking to lead us astray. Since this journey from the day when we were born again and came to faith in Jesus Christ to the day when Jesus Christ comes again and we will be eternally glorified, for it is not some journey down easy street, Christian, nor some life of Rest and relaxation, Christian, nor even some smooth trip sailing upon leisure or pleasure or opulence or comfort, Christian. But instead, the Christian life, it is a battle. It is a fight and downright spiritual warfare that we must always, always, always be willing to engage in. 
Let us, in light of that, for as the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon once shared, that when the ancient Spartans marched into battle, they advanced with cheerful songs, willing to fight. But you see, when the Persians entered the battle, you could hear as the soldiers came on cracks of whips by which the officers drove the coward soldiers into the battle. Therefore, no wonder, there, therefore, no wonder that only a few Spartans were more than enough to defeat thousands of Persians, since in fact they were like lions in the midst of those sheep. And so it is with the members of Christ's church, and that there is no need to drive them to action, but full of irrepressible and everlasting life, for they long to overcome everything that is contrary to God and to his word. And thus, as enthusiastic soldiers of the cross, we are like lions in the midst of herds of enemies. But with God's help, nothing can stand against us. And thus, lovingly, brother Christian, sister Christian, let me ask, for does that describe your life here this morning? And that you long to overcome everything that comes your way that is contrary to God and to his word, like a lion in the midst of herds of enemies, knowing that with God's help that absolutely nothing can stand against you? Or is your life more accurately described as indifferent to the false teachers out there today who are looking to mislead you? Or inattentive toward the false prophets out there today who are looking to deceive you. Or just kind of like, ah, whatever, toward the charlatans out there today doing everything in their power to try to drag you into the depths of hell forever. And the reason I ask is because we have been called Christian, Colossians 2.8, to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy or by empty deceit according to human tradition or to the elemental spirits of the world. And thus, because of that, lovingly, then, let me encourage you this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, to put on the whole armor of God, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the gospel of peace, and to be willing then to engage in spiritual warfare against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil, and against the cosmic powers present over this dark age who are looking to take you, Christian, and your kids, Christian, and your family, Christian, your friends, Christian, your loved ones, Christian, and as many people as they can, Christian, down. Which means then, Christian, that now is not the time to become indifferent or negligent or lazy or careless about the spiritual war that is taking place all around you simply because you believe that you are part of the elect. But instead, now is the time, Christian, to put on the whole armor of God, to be strong in the Lord and to be willing to fight the good fight so that you can most assuredly then, Christian, stand firm against the evil schemes of the devil until the day that Jesus Christ comes again and ultimately has you gathered to himself. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body continue to be aware of and to guard ourselves against and to be willing to fight the good fight against the evil schemes of the devil, all while resting in the fact that because we have been predestined and called and justified as the true children of God, that we will also then one day most assuredly be eternally glorified as well, since you, God, will never, ever, ever allow any of your children to ever be plucked out of your hand. 
and thus because of that give us the grace and the strength we need, Father, to endure in Jesus Christ until the very end, until the day when he, Jesus Christ, comes again in great power and great glory and triumphantly has his elect gathered to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our perseverance, Lord, it is a work of your preservation. Father, you giving us grace upon grace upon grace to flee from the wickedness around us, the false teachers around us, and to continue to abide in you. Father, we know that tribulation will come our way. We know that false teachers and false prophets will come our way. But Lord, we also know that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come again as well. Thus, until that day, I pray that we be faithful in the moment, Lord. Give us the grace and the strength we need to continue to persevere in you. To go to war spiritually against the powers of this dark and wicked age to be willing to fight the good fight, to protect our families, our loved ones, our children from all the spiritual forces of evil that are coming for our families, coming for our children, coming for us. Lord, let us not be lazy at this time and just cling to the fact that we believe that we are part of the elect, that we are truly a child of God and that we now don't have to do anything. But instead, let us know that the Christian life is not a journey on top of a cruise ship. It is on a battleship. And we are here to fight for the great king, to remain faithful for the great king until the day the great king Jesus Christ comes again and gathers his elect to himself. Give us that grace we need, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.